Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is Michael Shermer. Dr. Michael Shermer is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and an adjunct professor of Claremont Graduate University and Chapman University, as well as the author of The Believing Brain. So without further ado, hello, Michael, and welcome on Singularity One-on-One. Good, good morning. Good morning. For you, it's a very early morning, I know, uh, <laughs> in California. As an interesting side note, uh, one of the things that we have in common with uh, Dr. Sherman is that I uh, heard that he's also a cyclist. Yeah, I can see your bikes in the background there. What do you got hanging up there? I have a Cervelo R3. I'm very oh, nice. fortunate. Yeah. Very nice. Unfortunately, though, this morning I am in Canada, in Toronto. So uh, we, had, we have had unseasonably warm winters, plus six degrees Celsius. But this morning we woke up to a blizzard. So oh, I'm afraid my that. cycling is over for the next few months. <laughs> All right. Which makes me very jealous uh, with respect to you that you can enjoy a, a ride later on during this day. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me uh, jump uh, with the first question here, Michael. Can you please tell us a little more about yourself and your background? Uh, in terms of what? My science background? In terms of, uh, well, I'd like to uh, find out who my guests are, not only as scientists, because, and of course, their work and their books uh, are of primary importance here. But I'd like to start a little bit more with further away with their personal background and how they got to be interested in science and uh, technology or skepticism in your case and so on. Right. Well, I grew up in Southern California. I went to Pepperdine University, uh, which is a uh, evangelical conservative college. And at the time, that's what I was. <clears throat> and uh, But I was always interested in science. I I was a science fiction fan growing up and, you know, a Star Trek fan. I was, I'm of that generation <clears throat> when Star Trek was actually aired for the first time. And, uh, and I didn't really want to know what I wanted to do in college other than astronomy seemed like the closest thing to science fiction. So I started there and, uh, and then shifted to theology when I became really religious. And that's what I was going to major in at Pepperdine. But I was mostly interested in being a college professor and dealing with the the big questions in life, you know, about free will and determinism and is there a God and the nature of the universe, that sort of thing. And um, when I became, when I sort of lost my religion, uh, I shifted to experimental psychology, which is what I was doing. And um, I liked science more than theology because there was an actual way to get an answer to a question that was more than just argument and debate and disputation. It was, we can actually run an experiment, collect some data to see what is really going on. And so that appealed to me more than the religious worldview did. <clears throat> and so I've never really looked back. I, I've always been interested in the margins of science, the paranormal, pseudoscience, you know, all, all the revolutions and the cutting edges of science, some of which turns out to be true, most of which turns out not to be true. And so that's kind of how I gravitated toward <clears throat> being Mr. Skeptic was, uh, was, was carving out a niche on the margins of science <clears throat> and finding a, a little... Um, I guess a, a niche there of 
of something that we could do at Skeptic that other people weren't doing. So, for example, in my column in Scientific American called Skeptic, uh, I, I deal with subjects that they would not otherwise deal with in the magazine because they're busy doing more of the mainstream scientific controversy. So, and that's a, a, a little uh, example of what we do at Skeptic. In other words, we cover topics that most science magazines don't cover. And, uh, and so to that extent, I'm always fascinated by the singularity people because, you know, they, they're, they kind of hover on the margins there of either being genius revolutionaries that are going to change the world and this is going to be the big thing, or maybe there's a lot of nonsense or pseudoscience going on there. And so, but most scientists don't really deal with that. They're busy doing their own thing. So <clears throat> that's what we do. That's that's fascinating, and we're going to definitely come back to the topic of the technological singularity. But before that, I want to get down, um, or, or at least um, put out your idea of, first of all, what does it mean to be a skeptic? Uh, well, skeptic is just, is just being a, a scientist. It's just a scientific way of thinking. Uh, technically, a skeptic is a, a thoughtful inquirer. That's what it means. That that is, we 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 come at claims with an open mind, and and we just want to look at the evidence and see what uh, the basis is of the claim, who's making the claim, the quality of the evidence, how you evaluate the evidence, how the claim fits into the larger worldview of how we know the world works based on previous knowledge, and those sorts of things. And there's nothing particularly special about skepticism outside of science because science is by nature skeptical. So if you just think of how science works, you know, we start with the null hypothesis, that is your claim is not true. We just assume it's not true because most claims are not true. And so the burden of proof is on you to provide the evidence to us that in fact your claim is true. And so and you just think of a simple example of how a, a drug produced by a pharmaceutical company gets approval by the FDA to be marketed uh, as a viable uh, drug for whatever it's supposed to do. So the FDA and scientists assume that your drug claims are not true, that your drug doesn't do what it claims it can do. Now you have to actually go out and run the experiments and, and show us that in fact it does do what you claim it can do. And once it meets those criteria, then then it can it, then it can be approved for marketing. Okay, so that's an example that, you know, everybody and their brother claims to have a cure for cancer, or AIDS, or whatever. Um, we know most of these are not true, and uh, and so the burden of proof is not on us scientists to sh to prove that your claim is not true. It's on you to prove to us that it is true. And so that that little principle of the null hypothesis, I think, applies to everything. <clears throat> so take aliens, for example. People claim that extraterrestrial intelligences have come to Earth. Okay, well, that's nice. Uh, but the burden of proof is not on me to prove that they haven't come here. It's on you to prove that they have. Where, where's your evidence? What what's the quality of your evidence? And so forth. <clears throat> and... Um, and this is a nice example of, I think, the difference between science and pseudoscience. The SETI people, for example, the scientists that are searching for extraterrestrial intelligence, they, they start off saying, we have no proof at all. Uh, now, here's what we're doing to kind of try to test our hypotheses and, and look at this and that claim and so on. Ufologists, by <clears throat> contrast, they say, oh, we know for sure 100% aliens have come here. Uh, and so they start off with the premise that they can't prove and then try to gather evidence to support it. That's not how science works. It's just the opposite of that. So that would be an example of, uh, of what skepticism is and, and how it's like science and, and why a lot of pseudoscientific claims are just that. They're, they're not really doing science. 
that, that's fantastic. And, and uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes uh, in support of what you just said is a quote by Carl Sagan, who uh, once said that science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking, a way of skeptically interrogating the universe with a fine understanding of human fallibility. And if we're not able to ask skeptical questions to interrogate those who tell us that something is true, such as ufologists and so on, to be skeptical of those in authority, such as politicians and so on, then we're up for grabs for the next charlatan, political or religious, who comes rambling along. That's my favorite uh, quote to explain my personal skepticism. And I think yeah, it's a I very... Yeah, I like that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but Sagan is, you know, one of the great skeptics of all time, so... Yeah, and, and he's one of my personal heroes, um, so I, I, I am a great fan. Uh, I grew up uh, behind the Iron Curtain uh, in, in communist Bulgaria, and I was very young, probably six or seven years old, when I watched his series on TV in Bulgaria, Cosmos, which wow. was one of the very few Western programs allowed at the time, and it wow. totally fascinated me, and it changed my complete world outlook and awareness of, of the place and the universe that we live in. Uh, but let me get back to topic here, and um, th th that kind of a fascinating transition that you made from religion to skepticism. How did that happen? That's, that's a very interesting thing, and, and I keep noticing it. For example, just yesterday I interviewed Luke uh, Melhauser uh, of the Singularity Institute, and he grew up in a Christian evangelical family in uh, Minnesota, and his father <laughs> is a preacher. Uh, and, and that's his very strong sort of evangelical background. And then he became, uh, you know, an atheist uh, and went into a completely different direction. So it's always fascinating for me to see how is that process happening, and especially Europe psychologist or psychiatrist. Yeah, psychiatrist. Psychiatrist by education. So how is that happening, and especially in your particular case? Um, well, there's no formula, really. It's... It, it, it all just depends. I do. I did do a, a study once on the SETI pioneers, and most of them uh, were deeply religious and then became atheists. And in a way, I, I actually speculate that aliens are are deities for atheists, in a way, <laughs> uh, because if you if you think about how we we portray or think about extraterrestrials, they're always like these super advanced, super intelligent. Uh, super moral beings that are like gods that come here, you know, in science fiction, they come here to rescue us like the day the earth stood still. The original 1951 film is obviously a Christ allegory. I mean, the, the characters, the main character's name is Mr. Carpenter, you know, and he comes to earth to deliver a message from on high, uh, to warn us about our sinful nature, to tell us to, you know, to get in line with the rest of the galactic uh, you know, intelligences and so forth, or, or else. And, and then he's killed by the authorities and he's brought back to life out of this, you know, tomb. He's in the jail and, and so on. It's exactly a Christ allegory. And in many ways, I think uh, uh, what, what we're dealing with there are, is a, a deep human impulse to want to believe in something bigger than us. Uh, I, I do think that's there. So, so, so then that's perhaps a good point to move to the singularity, to the technological singularity as a concept. I mean, if aliens are the divinities of atheists who went into SETI, then is the technological singularity the rupture of the nerds? 
the religion <laughs> for geeks. I think the, it is. The Church of Robotics. It is in, in many ways. Uh, and I have to say, it's, it's a very compelling narrative uh, that kind of gives me, all of us, I guess, the, the sense that maybe there is something coming grander than us that will save us, that will give us everlasting life and so on. I mean, in, in many ways, I think Ray Kurzweil is, is almost a Christ-like figure. Um, and uh, that's, that's the very thing that I think we have to be cautious about, because there is that human impulse that we have to want to believe those sorts of things. And the fact that we're science geeks and it's couched in scientific language <clears throat> makes it all the more tempting to believe that it's true, because it actually does have the possibility of being true. It's, it's the only hope we have given that the rest of the claims for immortality are based on superstition and magical thinking and, and a supernatural worldview. The, the advantage the singularity worldview has is that it's based in science. It's grounded in something that has a real possibility of being true. Now, that doesn't make it true, though. So, we have to, we, again, we should just start with the skeptical perspective, the null hypothesis. The claims of the singularitarians are not true until they prove otherwise. And, and that's, that's my only point of view on this whole thing. I, I hope I hope the singularity folks are, are right. I hope it turns out to be the case that our generation is the generation that will achieve all uh, these great grand uh, breakthroughs that will lead to, you know, extension of life and that sort of thing. Uh, I just think that because in the history of humanity, everybody who's ever made a claim like that has been wrong, that skepticism is the appropriate position to start off with and and see how it goes well let me see if i can challenge this claim at a couple of levels and see where it takes us so first of all uh people have tried have tried to fly for at least since the time of daedalus and icarus uh and leonardo da vinci had his uh, famous drawings uh <coughs> centuries ago until the wright brothers got it right and then in a very short period of time, from the early 1900s to, to, you know, I think 1928 or so, we had transatlantic or transoceanic flights. And then we had commercial flight in the 30s and 40s and 50s, and, and now it, it's, it's a given. Now it's a, it's a fact of life. So two, 3,000 years of, of, of failure was, you know, uh, overcome by a single success. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an ancient, I think, Indian or Chinese proverb that says, a single candle, candle can extinguish 10,000 years of darkness. <laughs> right. So isn't well, that what science is all about? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so somebody's got to be first. Uh, uh, you know, so the first person to achieve flight then, uh, re then rejects the null hypothesis that flight is not possible. Okay, great. So as soon as the cryonics people bring back a, a frozen dog or whatever, and it's and it's back to what it used to be, it's alive at all. Okay, then then we have a a rejection of the null hypothesis with an actual experimental example. That's all. That's all. I'm I'm all for it. There's nothing wrong with that. And if that's the case, then then I'm right there with you. I'll I'll drop my skepticism. I just think that as difficult as flight is. Uh, what the singularitarians are proposing, achieving what, whatever it is they're proposing exactly, let's just take one of achieving a, a, a significant life extension or immortality. I just think that problem is many, many orders of magnitude harder than flight, for example. 
Yeah, but that's from our perspective today. I mean, if you tell a person from the 6th century about flight, they would consider it perhaps equal because gods were the ones that could fly, sure. right? In yeah. ancient and, Greece and, I, and so I, on. I think a reasonable argument is that if we do encounter extraterrestrial intelligences, they're not going to be just like 50 years ahead of us technologically or 100 years ahead of us. They're, they'll be tens of thousands or millions of years ahead of us to the point where they probably will have achieved something like what the Singularitarians are proposing. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me that, that that would be the case in the long run. I just, my, my instincts about how science works and the, and the growth curves, um, uh, is that we're still along, we're generations away. But, but, but believe me, I hope mm -hmm. I'm there. I hope I get to be part of this next generation. My yeah. standard line of this on this, though, is that I'm probably going to just miss it, right? Because I was born in 54. <laughs> so you guys claim that, isn't that like the dividing line? If you're born before 55, you're probably not going to make it. If you're born after 55, you have a good chance of making it. I'm right on the astrological cusp, so to speak. Uh, and I'm going to be so mad if you guys do this right after I die. I'm going to come back and haunt you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, by the way, let me just position myself here a little bit clearer. I consider myself as a skeptical singularitarian, you know, uh, as, a, as an open inquirer, uh, hence my, I have a very strong background in philosophy and, and my alias, and I'm, I, thus I very much sympathize with your skeptical predisposition because that's how I feel naturally too. That's, that's my intuitive reaction to most things. Um, so I wouldn't go as far as claiming that I embrace all the ideas that the community embraces. <laughs> to the extent that they are generally. And yet I'm very hopeful that uh, many of the ideas would come to fruition. And, and one of the things is I'm trying to see if there's any way of uh, finding precursors that mm -hmm. show us the direction. And that's why I actually quoted the flight as one of the examples, because you could say, well, listen, uh, there were many precursors about flight. You know, we had actually balloons flying uh, decades before the Wright brothers. Um, we had, you know, the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci, who was a genius in so many different fields and weights together. Uh, so perhaps there were precursors based on which one could deduce that eventually that feat would be accomplished. Uh, just like uh, Tsiolkovsky and, and a number of other people predicted, you know, uh, space flight and, and space machines and even drew drawings about, you know, the first engines and things like that decades before they became reality. So the, the question then is, in my mind, are the precursors that Ray Kurzweil is quoting, things like the law of accelerating returns, Moore's law, the computation, the growth in artificial intelligence uh, as embodied by, say, the Google autonomous self-driving car, smartphone, social media, the rise of the internet, storage, uh, uh, the, 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 the deciphering of the, the human genome, you know, an incredible amount of accomplishments that we have had in so many fields, aren't they kind of showing that direction, at least roughly? And, and perhaps we can argue, because for me, it's not so much about the timeline, you see. I don't even know if I will be fortunate enough, I'm a bit younger than you, uh, I mean, probably a lot younger than you, but because you, you're actually about the edge of my dad. But um, <laughs> but I'm not sure if I'll be lucky enough to take advantage of these, you know, 
life extension technologies that are expected to come. And Let yet, me for me, something. it's a philosophical issue. It's not so much about the timeline. It's about the, the substance. Right. Let me ask you something. What is it we're talking about here when you say the singularity or we're going to get there and so forth? What's the there there? What's, what do you mean? Do you mean immortality? Or? Well, we can measure it in so many ways, but one of them would be intelligence explosion. The simplest, shortest way of putting it, as I.J. Good did. So that would mean um, the ability to enhance our cognitive capacities beyond measure. Uh, that would mean the presence of autonomous self-driving cars, smartphones, smart, uh, uh, you know, everything. That would well, be smart Well, by your example, clothes. to uh, somebody living in the Middle Ages, say in 600 A.D., we we've already gotten there. This is the singularity. I mean, this this would be such a startlingly, shockingly different world of so much memory storage and and, and capacity and power and so forth. Uh, we're here, but because we're here, it doesn't feel like you know we're, we've we've made that breakthrough. I mean, just think about smart cars. Mm -hmm. There's been no single year have the cars made a quantum leap. They've just gotten smarter every single year. It just every year the, the automakers just add a few more components and the curve just keeps growing ever so slowly. Now on the, on the but, but there's not been a huge major breakthrough. Same thing with flight. I mean, all the the major breakthroughs happened fairly early. By the 1950s the curve had already pretty much topped out such that jets today are in principle no different than they were in the 50s. They're just more comfortable, they're smarter, more computers and so on. There's not been a huge breakthrough there. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's more typical of how technologies grow. Uh, such that I, I suspect that there's not going to be any given month or day or year where, where we all go, wow, look at that. I think it's just going to be smarter and smarter and smarter year by year. And because of the way our brains are designed, we, we don't notice, we get so used to the way things are within weeks that we're not going to notice what whatever it is you're describing. It's just going to be one more component. Now, the problem with the longevity stuff is that the doubling of the lifespan, for example, in the la over the last century and a half, that's not been the result of intelligent technologies and medicine. That's been more the result of public health such that the doubling of the lifespan is just really an artifact, a statistical artifact of getting more people that died in between ages 1 and 10 to not die between ages 1 and 10. So they slide up the scale, and instead of the pyramid being narrow at the top and fat in the bottom, it's just shifting like this, such that more and more people are moving up from decade to decade and living longer. But the upper ceiling is still there. I mean, people in the 19th century lived into the 80s and 90s and 100s. It's just that but not more, often, more, people are, more people are making it up there. But no one has come close to breaking the upper ceiling of 120 or so. No, There has not been any technologies that I can see that have gotten us closer to breaking that ceiling. I think that's a huge barrier. Like what would come after jet aircraft? How much faster can you go? You can't. Well, well let, me, let me give you a couple of examples and see. So, for example, I entirely accept your jet example. And it's, you know, it's a known fact that there was a huge progress in terms of jet speed and, and all those things. And then eventually it sort of flattened up for 50 or 60 years. But maybe that's the upper end of the S-curve. And then maybe when we get another paradigm shift with, say, a new radical engine or a new radical uh, aerodynamics design, uh, 
then we'll have the beginning of the next S-curve because it's not a straight line, it's a consequence of, of S-curves, right? So take, for example, Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic might turn out to be one of these uh, sort of paradigm changers. Uh, in other words, if they can come up with a way to take people up in space for $200,000, now, five, ten years down the road, they may be able to take down the cost effectiveness of this to uh, say $10,000 or even $5,000 and take us from LA to you know Sydney in like two hours right mm -hmm. yeah, going okay. through the that stratosphere would, I would say that would be a breakthrough yeah. and that would be a breakthrough so so you know one could say that there could be precursors seen there you know there's the commercialization of space there's after that the commercialization of you know inter planetary space, just like there was the commercialization of space flight. But you see, the, the analogy with the human body, I think, doesn't hold, because those, those the, the number of variables that are involved in achieving what you describe is super simple compared to tweaking the human body and genome. You know, there's a thousand-fold more Mm -hmm. components and variables in tweaking the human body so that we can live longer than 120 years, say 200 or 300 years. I mean, death is just wired into us. It's just what happens. Everything falls apart. So, like, if you could just, it's not going to be like, if we could just fix this one thing, then everything else will fall into place. Everything you do to tweak the, the genome or the biochemistry of the body is going to have tenfold more side effects and consequences that happen that would not apply to, say, space flight or, or, or air travel. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the response to that, and, and, you know, I'm trying to create a, a debate here between the two of us to, to, to see where it collectively takes us, because I highly value your opinion. Uh, what about the examples such as um, Dr. Anthony Atala, who created, uh, you know, three, a bioprinted... Uh, 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 bladder uh, about 10 years ago and transplanted it into what was then a you know an adolescent boy and is now a, a normal adult right an mm -hmm. adult with normally functioning bladder so isn't that pointing and you know cartilages uh, for the war veterans from Iran and uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan are not a problem to make nowadays they're slow right they're imperfect but they're not really a problem anymore cartilage is very easy to make things like nose ears etc mm -hmm. right uh, we, we've already made successfully bladder 10 years ago. Uh, so the idea is that eventually we'll start making, instead of aluminum or titanium joints, we'll start making real natural cartilage joints. Mm -hmm. And, you know, slowly, one, we're already making uh, rat, rat uh, hearts and things like that. So eventually we'll take one organ at a time and we'll sort of fill in the whole jigsaw, the whole, you know, picture. Uh, and another way of doing this is, by the way, just yesterday I watched this, and I published it actually on Singularity Weblog, this fascinating documentary about the first head transplant. Uh, it was done in Cleveland, Ohio, um, uh, and it was done by a very famous neurosurgeon called Dr. R.J. White, and he did it on a chimp. Uh, and uh, basically taking the head of a chimp, the body of another chimp, and transplanting it there, and then reviving it, and then watching for all the effects. And he actually managed to sustain brain uh, outside of the uh, skull, alive for something like 12 hours, and then measure the output of the brain, 
uh, in the, main, the way that usually that output is uh, considered to be of, of self-awareness and of thinking and of thinking processes within the, the neocortex and so on. And he demonstrated that too. And then he was invited to the Soviet Union at the time, which was the late 1960s, by the way, and was shown a number of similar experiments that the Soviets were running at the time, uh, which was um, uh, dogs with two heads, uh, or just a, a dog head severed without the body, kept alight, kept alive for many, many hours uh, with a machine, basically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was shocking to me, but, but uh, and then the doctor was going through the personal dilemmas and how he was, you know, coming from his Christian background himself, and he went to the Pope, to John uh, Paul II, for advice about what happens, because he said, I believe that we can do that with people. It, we're not far away. He did it 50 years ago. And the only reason why he didn't move on forward was the lack of money, because at the time it would have been $10 million. Uh, and he, he said, I believe we can do that with people. So if you are able to take basically the software or a small part of the hardware, as you said, we're wired to die. We are. What if we take this and put it into a new body, which we can either take from uh, a donor, which had, you know, an accident, or we can fabricate piece by piece, clone it, in other words. Okay, a couple things. Um, so what happened to the head of the accident uh, a person? Why can't we, why can't we cut off that head and, and put it on somebody else's body? Well, well whose body are you going to do? Because if, once you've achieved that technology and it's cheap, then everybody should have their head put on somebody else's body if their body fails. So th there you have a, a, a sort of a numbers problem. Absolutely. But more importantly, um, obviously the, the soul, the personality, you, however you want to define you, that's in your brain. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is the cumulative patterns uh, of all of our memories and personality and who we are stored in the brain. Now, the only way to achieve immortality is that that has to be not perfectly replicated somewhere else because that won't be you. So this is another thing that bothers me about some of the singularity, singularity scenarios where you, let's say, download all your memories and patterns into some other storage medium that's better, longer, longer lasting than the electric meat of our brains, just protein. Uh, something equivalent of let, let let's say the time machine on my my computer here I download once a once a week or a couple times a week yeah. so it's all stored on this little side thing such that if my computer dies or gets stolen I still have everything here mm -hmm. but but that won't be you so let let's say that you download why not why not okay so let's say that you download yourself once a week onto the equivalent of a time machine for yeah. For humans, yeah. Yeah. and you go on a a, a, a trip overseas, and your plane crashes, and and you're killed, but you are are stored in this time machine, and so your your say your wife replicates you mm -hmm. using the time machine, and there you are, she has you back, and there you are. Okay, so that that's one scenario. But now let's say there's been a terrible mistake. The plane actually didn't crash. The the pilot was able to pull it out and save it. But somehow the message got to your wife that you were killed and the time machine replicates you and you go home, you, and you, you want to surprise your wife, honey, I wasn't killed, and there you are in bed with your wife. 
and you're standing there in the door, doorway going, what the, that's not me. That's some other dude that looks just like me. Now there's two of you. Which one is the real you? Yeah. You see the problem there. It's an identity problem. That's the question that I asked of Dr. Rando Kuna, who is one of the world's foremost uh, scientists and who said that in his opinion, mind uploading is not science fiction. And he's working on whole brain emulation. Yeah, but my point is that that won't be you. It's and, just like a twin. It's just like your twin who happens to have your same memories. And those are all very important questions that I ask him, and those are all very serious ethical issues. And, yeah, so and, what's the know, answer? And I ask him things like that. So who is the exactly the same case that you ask me? And I ask, I ask him, who is the husband of my wife? And then uh, who is the father if I have kids of my kids? And then what happens if you're a copy of the copy? And not a copy right. of the original. Does that mean you're lower on the hierarchy or not? You know, sure. those are all questions, very tough questions. But the fact that we don't have answers does not mean, in my mind, that we wouldn't have to confront them. Well, that what I've just described is not a technological problem. It's a philosophical problem exactly. of identity. Now, the only the way around it for achieving immortality would be to to replace your brain neuron by neuron. Uh, it, it, with some kind of longer-lasting substance, well, you know, maybe you coat the neurons or you replace the the, the cell walls with something that's semi-permeable but la that lasts longer than protein does, or some such thing. I can't imagine how this could be done, but that doesn't mean it can't be done. So that such that your memories never actually die because your brain doesn't feel anything. So as you inject these nanobots that go in there and replace every neuron with some kind of other substance that lasts longer, then, then it's still you. So that, that's the only scenario I can see that, that maintains your integrity as an individual without any replication process, without the, the two or three copies of you running around problem. Mm -hmm. That's very yeah. interesting. Let me grab this. So, you know, I share your healthy skepticism towards most things and towards the singularity too. What would it take though for people like us, skeptics, to change our mind, are we the kind of people like like the, in the cryonics example, uh, freeze a dog using whatever latest technologies you want, uh, and the, uh, you know for like a year, in you know in in one of those you know tubes in Phoenix or wherever, and and then bring him back, uh, and then he's running around and so on. Not, I don't, I'm not talking about chill him down a little ways. Like we're halfway there though. We're yeah. halfway there. There was a rabbit uh, liver or kidney, I can't remember, that was frozen um, and for an for a extended period of time. Um, and um, after that was, again, transplanted back into a living uh, rabbit, and uh, the rabbit survived. Uh-huh. Yeah, an organ's different than a whole organ. Agreed. Yeah. But... but Still, it's a step in the right direction. Yep, that's Are fine. we the kind of people who can only accept something post-factum, after only it has happened entirely, and we cannot see the, the direction or the steps pointing in that direction? Well, I think the steps are all great. So the other problem with life extension is that I see is that um, what's the quality of life of the extended time? Mm -hmm. So let's say you get more and more people living from 90 to 120 Mm -hmm. Whereas it used to be almost nobody made it that far. The upper ceiling is still there, but with all these breakthrough technologies of organ transplants and so on, more of us make it up there. But but at what quality of life? Are you lying in a 
in a bed in a in a in an assisted living or a nursing home, mm-hmm. uh, essentially a vegetable because your organs are so sturdy now. That's that's not a good solution. The the, the problems of of dementia and Alzheimer's and all that have to be solved. I absolutely agree with you. And actually, one of the guests uh, at Singularity University, Dr. Alex Jadad, um, who is one of the foremost uh, doctors in Canada, he said that the question is not how to put more years into one's life. The question is how to put yeah. more life into right. one's years. Right. So, so again, I, I think we're we're not very. I'm not seeing any major breakthroughs that, that are going to solve that upper ceiling problem of 120. Mm-hmm. No one's ever made it past 120 or 122, whatever it is. So what's going to do it at that? What's going to make that breakthrough to make it 150, 200, 300? And, 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 and you don't want people lying in a nursing home from age 90 to 200. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me shift the topic here a little bit. Um, one of the reasons why I invited you today was because I thought that your presentation at the Singularity Summit was perhaps the funniest, most cheerful, and strangely <laughs> enough, perhaps most optimistic yes. uh, presentations. Um, so even though that's, a, that's clearly you know, a summit of optimists, uh, people who hope to live forever, still, I think for a skeptic, you're incredibly optimistic. I am. I am. How is that possible to be a skeptic and an optimist, and 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 why? Perhaps you can explain a little bit more. About well, I'm that. I'm pro science, and so first of all, by temperament, I'm optimistic anyway. Uh, but but be, but being pro science, uh, it's easy to be optimistic because things really have gotten better. So my point on the social singularity, my talk at Singularity Summit was was to actually look at instead of pie in the sky things that are going to happen in the next century or so. Let's look at what actually has happened, and and not in the areas that everybody else has already done, although those are all great. <laughs> it's just that I wanted to look at something different, which is how much better life has gotten for so many more people. <clears throat> okay, so nobody's made it to the hundred past the hundred twenty year barrier. However, most people in the Middle Ages died, at, uh, uh, you know, at an early age because of disease and so forth, and most people before us lived in dirt poverty. I mean. Hardly anybody lived like King Louis the Fourteenth did, with his several hundred servants and so on. But even even he had no better life than the average person today. So something has happened that is more people in more places, more of the time, live like better than King Louis the Fourteenth did just a couple centuries ago. Mm-hmm. So although he had several hundred servants, uh, you can walk down to your local Starbucks and there is a barista waiting for you to make you your venti latte right now. They're waiting there. Uh, just ride your bike down there and, and get your latte. Or you go to the electronics store and they have a television just for you. They made it just for you in China and shipped it over to Toronto and it's waiting there for you. Uh, in other words, uh, something has happened socially that I think has already uh, achieve something like what a, the singularity likes to describe this huge breakthrough wealth freedom power liberty autonomy for billions of people that did not exist before uh, and so i think that's worth celebrating so let me see if i can connect this back to us to our original topic then during your presentation you showed a number of exponential curves yeah Precisely supporting your argument about the social singularity, and they were things like, you know, the growth of GDP, uh, violence, mortality, and things like that. Well, 
isn't it in a funny way all those exponentially growing curves aren't they in a funny way supporting the singularity argument perhaps you're not willing to take it as far as ray and the other people are but in a way it's pointing towards the same direction okay it? first of all i let me say i i i'm glad ray people like ray are doing what they're doing we need big thinking visionaries to throw stuff out there that is most of it probably is not going to happen. But if we don't think about it, it definitely won't happen. So I'm glad somebody's working on it. It's just that my job as, as, as a skeptic is to, <laughs> is to just, just say, wait a minute, okay, yeah, I hope you're right, but you know, could be this, could be that, and, uh, and just try to have a reality check once in a while. I'm all for it, believe me. I, uh, I'm not religious. So as far as I know, when I die, it's gone. My, my pattern is gone forever. So I, I'm not particularly crazy about that scenario, so I hope you're right. Um, but the fact that I want it to be true doesn't make it true, so, you know, we have to have that reality check. So given that, I, that proviso, I think it's, it's, I'm glad you guys are doing what you're doing, and you know, do more of it, as long as it's science-based and there's some arguments to be made based on data and reason and so forth. And, and I, li I like all the curves. Um, how much farther we can go, I think we can get a, a truly global economy uh, in which there are there are no economic borders. I mean, economic borders, that's just tribalism. That's just, we want to keep our jobs and our little tribe and not let you have our jobs. You know, that's, that's an old way of thinking that, that there's a fixed pie of wealth and that if your slice is slightly bigger, that means my slice is slightly smaller, okay? A singularity way of thinking about that is no, the, the pie keeps growing and growing yeah. and growing, so all of our slices get bigger. Uh, so I'm on board with that. Yeah, and, and I, so I do think that in the long run, the scenarios that the singularity people are describing will not happen if the social singularity doesn't happen with it. Just take back to jet aircraft. You know, how much faster can they fly? Politically, no faster than the speed of sound. There, you won't be allowed to fly faster than the speed of sound because of the uh, shock wave that goes across. Okay, so you, you'll, you're going to have to go into space to get around the political restraint. Uh, and so there are those things and, and, you know, as, as uplifting as it is to, to live in the West and talk about these things, we have to remember that there's a good many governments around the country or around the world who would like nothing better than to go back to a fourth century, fourth century theocracy where women have no rights. They're just no better than, than cattle. And that science and technology is the, is the, is the demon, is the uh, is the enemy of truth, right? So uh, we have to stay vigilant about some basic boots on the ground, basic freedoms and liberties that none of the technological scientific breakthroughs of singularity will have any effect at all if we don't have the political economic system that allows it to grow. That's sort of, that was sort of my point of my talk. And, and, and I'm very sympathetic to many of your, uh, you know, social libertarian ideas and and market freedom and things like that. But let me ask you about a couple of points that you make there about the social and political barriers to change and the ability of the majority to stop uh, certain events or uh, things from happening. Um, is that really the case? Um, take, for example, cloning. If we have political and social and religious uh, opposition to cloning in a number of countries, across the world, would we be even, will we be able to prevent that from happening? Well, I, um, well, at the moment there are restrictions on that. And, uh, I think the way around that is, is, is more piecemeal 
smaller steps to get people used to it. Like uh, I'm old enough to remember when in vitro fertilization came online in the 80s. There was much hue and cry about this, that uh, mm -hmm. man should not play God, and that, uh, you know, you know these natural abortions that happen, all this is God's way of, and that we're trying to, to tinker with God's, you know, okay. Well, as soon as that technology got to be accepted and uh, and people were using it, then, then nobody objected anymore. And I think in the long run, uh, even something like cloning would be acceptable as long as it happened in a stepwise fashion and you sort of let the religious people get used to it, and they could see the direct be medical benefits to it, especially congressmen who are, who are old and dying, where they could see some actual medical breakthroughs for themselves personally, then they're going to vote for it. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not pessimistic about that. I just think that, that those barriers are there we have to deal with, the political barriers, religious mm -hmm. barriers. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I agree with that. Um, so... We're getting towards the end of our um, interview here, but I have about three questions left. Uh, so let me just ask you a little bit on a tangent, but it's interesting because it's not a very big issue. Are you skeptical about global warming, or what's your take on that idea? Yeah, um, I th it depends what you mean by global warming. Okay, so in Is general... climate change caused by the, you know, the things that humans as a civilization do? To yeah. cause it. I think in general we are having some effect, a measurable effect on the environment. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that it is not as bad as people say it is. Uh, I think there's a lot of doomsday preaching in the environmentalist movement uh, that bothers me. It is a little bit like um, a religion in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, of portraying the apocalyptic end of the world, Armageddon's happening because of global warming. I don't think that's the case. I do think there's time for market forces to operate and allow entrepreneurs who can figure out new technologies and make money solving environmental problems that that's the way to go rather than a top-down Manhattan Project-sized government-based program to solve our problems. I do think that you know electric cars and alternative sources of energy, those sorts of things are the long-term solution. In any case, the you know in terms of thinking like a singularitarian, that in the long run, you know, on that sort of uh, type one, type two, type three civilization, we do have to get off of fossil fuels. That's a that's a pre-type one civilization source of energy. That in the long run, we have to do this anyway. So if it if the doomsdayers scare us into pushing the technology faster, I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I just worry about the doomsdayers um, encouraging politicians to do too much in the way that could actually slow us down. I'd rather have, I'd rather have the great genius inventors of the world solving these problems rather than government bureaucrats. So uh, in general, I think global warming is probably real, at least partially human caused. I, I don't think we can say for sure what the long-term consequences will be, how much warmer it's going to get, what the consequences will be of that. And therefore, especially given the economic problems we already have, that spending trillions of dollars to lower greenhouse gases by a tiny little percent that would lower the global temperature by a fraction of one degree in the next century, I don't think that's a good use of our money. Um, the last two questions that I traditionally ask of my uh, guests on the show are uh, as follows. The first one is, where can our viewers and listeners who want to find more about you and your work uh, do so? 
Oh, skeptic.com is the web page to go to for sure. I mean, there's a michaeltermer.com, you know, my own personal web page, but skeptic.com is pretty much a clearinghouse for everything. Our new project that I'm working on is uh, the skeptical curriculum uh, program. That is, I want to take skepticism into the classroom more than it's already there. Already there's professors all over the country teaching courses that are like skepticism. I just taught one called Skepticism 101 at Chapman University. It was a great experience and uh, I, I want to, we're going to create a web page that's a clearinghouse. It's a little bit like TED.com where you have all these free videos except we're going to have videos, PowerPoint presentations, lectures, course syllabi, reading lists, projects, illusions, magic tricks, student uh, research projects, things like that, such that if you want to teach skepticism at your university, you can just go to our webpage and pull down all the things you need to do so and implement it. And I think in the long run um, that the spread of skeptical scientific reasoning, that's the best hope we have for humanity. So I'm trying to do my little share by making that more official uh, in an academic setting, make make every university and college should have a course on skepticism, teaching people how to think. I agree. I agree entirely with that, and I'm entirely in support of it. Uh, personally, though, I want to ask you this. Uh, the, the question that arises from that is this. Once you've established your skeptical uh, predisposition or way of interrogating the universe, how do you counterbalance that with the need to follow the evidence no matter where it takes you? Right, because uh, if you're too skeptical then to a yeah. certain point you prevent yeah. all progress from happening. Well, uh, although humans have built-in cognitive biases, science itself uh, is designed to get around those such that it, it doesn't matter if, if, if you're too skeptical or I'm not skeptical enough or vice versa, it doesn't matter. Um, the community at large of scientists working will eventually get the right answer. That the competitive nature of science is what gives us hope that despite all the politics of science and all the biases and the psychology of knowledge and all that, uh, that the community at large will, will keep that, those biases in check such that if you, if you don't look out for your own biases, somebody else will. And, and that's what gives me hope about science, is that it, it's a community process that is designed to work around those problems. So perhaps that could lead us to the very last question, which I always ask, and which is, do you have a single message, the most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? What would that be? Uh, it would be, uh, don't, don't be fooled. And you're the easiest person to be fooled. <laughs> that is, we, we should all be skeptical, even of the skeptics in ourselves, and just always be on the alert of how to think about these different claims uh, and watch out for those biases, including our own, because they're very powerful. That's fantastic. Dr. Michael Shermer, thank you, thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. You're welcome. Thank you.